I'm Christopher Kakuyo Sensei, and I'm a Sensei of the Salt Lake Buddhist Fellowship. We are an independent, transsectarian, all-inclusive American Sangha in the Mahayana tradition. The Way of Oneness podcast is a collection of our Dharma talks, delivered at our Salt Lake City Fellowship Sangha. Enjoy the Dharma talk. So for today's Dharma, Dharma talk, I want to share some ideas about the uh, three marks of existence, which are part of the content of the Buddha's awakening. Now again, I want to thank you for being here, for taking time out of your day to be present with yourself and with the fellowship. And for many of you coming together to learn the Buddha's teachings and your desire to help the world be a more compassionate place. For today's Dharma talk, we're going to talk about the three marks. These three insights about the characteristics of existence and being, again, are the content of the Buddha's awakening to reality. And they are found in all traditions of Buddhism. They are impermanence, anika, suffering, dukkha, and non-self, or anatman, or anatman. So for today's talk, what I'm going to do is going to give you a high overview of the three, and then over the next few weeks, we'll do a separate talk on each one, and how these insights relate to our everyday lives and how they can be transformative. So, on first blush, impermanence, suffering, and non-self sound rather dreary. Nothing lasts. Life is suffering, and you're not anybody after all. (laughs) The curious thing about this insight of the Buddha is it is quite actually the opposite. Understanding impermanence The nature of suffering and our true selves is actually the path to boundlessness, equanimity, and a profound joy. Our practice, the engagement with the Four Noble Truths, and our practice of the Eightfold Path help us to develop a new relationship with these realities. A few uh, weeks ago, we spoke about right view or right understanding And the three marks of existence would come under this concept, this idea of right view. So, impermanence. Let's start with impermanence. So the first mark of existence is impermanence, the impermanence of all things. And I want to share a story, and I love this story, and it comes from the San Francisco Zen Center, and it goes way back um, to the late 60s when uh, they were building Tassajara, which is outside of Carmel, and it's their retreat center. And Shizuki Roshi, at the time, was the, was the abbot. He was the one who was uh, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. So they were sitting around there talking about, about Buddhist teachings. So uh, this guy, Dave Chadwick, who is um, part of that group, he later wrote an autobiography of Shunran Suzuki called Crooked Cucumber, um, which is a great, is a great book, a great biography. 
And that was the name his teacher gave Shunra Suzuki was Crooked Cucumber. Nice. One of those uh, cool Dharma names. So the story goes, Suzuki Roshi, I've been listening to your lectures for years. And I really love them. And they're really inspiring. And I know that what you're talking about is actually very clear and simple. But I must admit, I just don't understand. I love it, but I feel like I could listen to you for a thousand years and still not get it. Could you please put in a nutshell, can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? <laughs> of course, everyone laughed. And Shizuki, if you've never seen him, I, I highly recommend you look up some video of him because he had this, this wry little smile and he was very funny. And of course, that's a ludicrous question. How can you break down all of Buddhism to one phrase, one little nutshell, it's just, it's not possible. So, and, and Suzuki Roshi was known for not giving a simple answer to anything, as a lot of Roshis are. Um, so everyone laughed, and nobody expected him to answer. Everybody expected him to smile and just go on to the next question. But he gave him something, he gave him something, and he said, he said, simple answer, everything changes. Everything changes. And I moved on to the next question. The heart of Buddhism is that everything, everything, everything changes. No wonder we're so freaked out at life. <laughs> So no wonder we're trying to fix everything in place. So I love this story, and I love that it's simple, that the first mark or seal of existence is impermanence. Literally, everything is constantly changing. And I like how Guillaume Cabose sensei refers to it as everything is constantly becoming. Everything is constantly becoming. Everything is continually revealing itself. Truth itself is continually revealing itself. Impermanence is the first mark of existence because the other, other two, non-self and suffering, relate to this sense of impermanence or this inability to really embrace, acknowledge, and experience impermanence. So you can ask yourself, what is your relationship with impermanence? Right? My relationship with impermanence has been a rotten one. If you look at all the poems on my arms, they're all love poems from broken hearts. Mm -hmm my broken hearts. And that's all about impermanence. The impermanence of love. The impermanence of relationships. At the root is the impermanence, either by circumstance or by death. And the older you get, the more real it becomes and the more frustrating it becomes because you're finally starting to get this shit. And now you're going to die. That's really frustrating. For the most part, our relationship with impermanence is a complicated one. And the Buddha discovered one that is fraught with insecurity, fear, delusion, and suffering. We tend to compartmentalize impermanence. We acknowledge that things change. We see it all around us in nature and in the fact that people die. But when we look at it, 
We act as if, though, in our lives, death happens to somebody else. Impermanence is somebody else's problem and not ours. Impermanence, for most of us, is a concept, but not a reality. I appreciate these lines from Thich Nhat Hanh. Quote, If we see impermanence as merely a philosophy, it is not the Buddhist teachings. Every time we look or listen, the object of our perception can reveal to us the nature of impermanence. We have to nourish our insight into permanence all day long. When we look deeply into a permanence, we see things change because causes and conditions change. When we look deeply into non-self, we see that the existence of every single thing is possible only because of the existence of everything else. We see everything else is the cause and the condition for its existence. We see that everything else is in it. End quote. I love the fact that if we change our relationship and embrace impermanence, it opens us up to the reality of our interconnection to all things. Things change because for everything there is a cause and a condition. When this happens, this arises. When this ceases, this ceases. As Tai goes on to say, every single thing is possible only because of the existence of everything else. How liberating this can be. How expansive this can make our worlds. End quote. But for most of us, this relationship continues to be a fraught one. We operate under the misperception of separation that somehow we are outside this conditionality. And we long to have a desperate need for things to stay the same. And we act in ways to try to control things and fix our lives in place. As if our lives were nothing more than an insect in a display case. Something fixed, attached, glued, is not free, is not alive, but dead. The same thing is true about who we are, or who we think we are, or have been told we are. You are constantly changing. As I look back at myself, back at my life, I'm amazed at all the different people I've been. If I look back to my 20s, I remember my 20s. I remember the person I was in my 20s, but that's not me. And in a very literal sense, that's not me. There's this sense of continuity because I remember that, but it's not me. The way I see the world, perceive the world, perceive my place in the world and my interaction with the world. The Buddha learned that change is not only possible, but it is the underlining reality of all existence. Yomi Kabose Sensei teaches, Buddha understands the world in which we live as a continuous changing. Everything changes. Nothing is permanent, end quote. Impermanence makes everything possible, makes our continual becoming possible, allows the law of karma to operate. 
At the same time, our attempts to fight against impermanence are trying to find stability in an unstable world, to find security by fixing our lives in place, by attaching to things that by nature, that by nature are always becoming something else, is the source of much of our suffering. I love this from Norman Fisher regarding Dogen's teachings about impermanence. Quote, for Dogen, impermanence isn't a problem to overcome with diligent effort on the path. Impermanence <laughs> is the path. Practice isn't the way to cope with our overcoming impermanence. It is the way to fully appreciate it, embrace it, and live it. So the second mark is dukkha. Dukkha is commonly translated as suffering. And most of us know the commonly translated phrase that life is suffering. But that word phrasing can be problematic. And the reason I say that is because my life at times has been suffering. My life has been suffering. I remember a year specifically that every day was a week and every week was a year. And I, I can remember the day I went, I, I transcended it and think time went back to normal time. I understand profound suffering. But I would not say that myself, it, my life itself is suffering. So I think that there's some problems in that translation of dukkha and the first noble truth that life is suffering. I think it's overly simplistic. And the word dukkha itself is a, is a nuanced word. Although I have to admit, as of late, watching what is going on in our world, I think it's easier to embrace that life is suffering. Originally, the word dukkha in, in, the, in the Pali and in the Sanskrit is a subtle one that refers to a wheel on a cart that is not set right. So it's off. So when you're pulling the cart, it jostles all over the place, up and down, and it moves so slowly. So I think when we think of life, we can think of life as that inability for it to move smoothly, life's inability to go with the flow. I think the challenge is that when we say life is suffering and we are not suffering, we lose the vigor of our practice. So I, I want to ask a question. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know this happened to me through my experience of Buddhism. The first time I came to Buddhism, I was really suffering, it was really hard, and I came, and I started applying some of the teachings, it got a little bit better, and then I fell in love. And guess what, you didn't see me at any Dharma center. Everything was good, it was cool. I had meaning. And sometimes we even see that in our fellowship. Somebody falls in love in those lazy Sunday mornings, cuddling with your new lover. 
Last thing you want to do is get up in the snow and go sit in silence. Wow, that sounds like fun. Maybe we can just snuggle instead. Because I think the problem with that is that I'm not suffering, so I don't need the practice. The practice is so much more than that. The practice isn't simply a self-help psychological way of life. It's a way of living. It's a way of perceiving and engaging with the world and engaging with yourself. It's all of life. So I think a better way to translate this phrase is that there is suffering, disappointment, dissatisfaction, distress, worry, anxiety in the midst of life, even when things are good. Sometimes even more when things are good. Because how, how many of us struggle to believe when it's good? How many of us are waiting for the next shoe to drop? Or that we don't deserve it? There are many causes that give rise to suffering and disappointment. And we'll talk about those in a later Dharma talk. But for today's talk, I want to talk about it in relationship to the three marks of existence. Our experience of dukkha, suffering, disappointment, distress, is born out of our strained relationship with impermanence. We acknowledge it like we nod our head to a stranger, but we do not know it as a dynamic part of our existence. We say, oh, yeah, there you are. We see it as a shadowy figure with malevolent intent, so we relegate it to the file labeled someday. And yet, not engaging with the reality of impermanence brings great suffering and disappointment. Some of the greatest suffering we experience is the loss of a loved one by death, divorce, suicide, or breaking up. How many of us have experienced that kind of brokenheartedness? Grief is a special kind of suffering. How many here are growing older, dealing with health issues? How many have lost jobs, friendships? How many here have lost their religion, lost face, lost respect, lost purpose? <laughs> At the heart of impermanence is this experience of loss. And ultimately, loss is hard because we do not accept, as the Buddha taught, quote, all conditioned things have the nature of vanishing, end quote. Wow, that's depressing. <laughs> But is it? I say that as we come to understand and live this, live this understanding and reality of impermanence, embrace it, it can be liberating. Because with this perception we have that things are permanent, we take it for granted. We think it will always be there. We think our lives will always be there. We think we always have tomorrow because there is no impermanence. Not really. Well, maybe for you, but not for me. 
And this embracing of impermanence is a call to wake up and live. Not to float, not to get by, not to survive, but to live, to live a life of becoming. I'm not saying that it's still not hard, that we still don't go through the cycle of grief, that we still don't suffer from time to time. But it puts that suffering in perspective and our changes our relationship with that suffering. So we can brace our lives as they are. Our wanting, our calculating, our trying to control things and people does not change the nature of change. We are powerless. Things change regardless because that is the nature of all conditioned existence. What the Buddhist teachings on impermanence and suffering are telling us is that our vain efforts to fight change only bring more disappointment, anxiety, and distress. And that leads us to the third mark of existence, non-self. And this is one of the most challenging concepts within the Buddha's awakening for a lot of us. And you won't get it today. So I'll just let you know that right, right up front. Because it's not something that can be conceptually understood. It's something that is experienced through practice, meditation, contemplation, and living. But we can talk about it. In the content of the Buddha's awakening, he discovered that there is no permanent, unchanging self. That our existence as being is more a verb than a noun. That we are a dynamic, ever-changing flow of life. This understanding is one of the most important insights of the Buddha and can only be one of the most confusing. Now, the Buddha did not teach that there is no self. We operate from the perspective of a self, but this self is not an eternal unchanging, but a manifestation of the flow of causes and conditions. We are a beautiful dance of the cosmos. This is one of my favorite quotes from Kiyazawa Manshi, a Shin Buddhist reformer in the earliest 20th century. He says, quote, Who am I? I am nothing but this moment in the flow of life. This flow of life is not in my control. It is the life of the universe itself. The life of the universe flows in me, and I just flow with this life. That is myself. End quote. But for many of us, we see ourselves not as a dynamic process of being and becoming, but as a thing. A thing that needs to be protected from change, loss, disappointment, and suffering. And we shut ourselves into our own self-inflicted solitary confinement. We see ourselves not as a verb, but as a noun, a thing, an object, and not releasing so much of what we think. We are nothing more than constructed stories told about us 
by someone else. And we learn young how to add to these stories told and construct new stories to protect this thing we call me. We can even embrace suffering, wallow in it, mainline it, to build up our construct story of who we are. And what are we protecting ourselves from? Our relationship to change, impermanence, suffering, and disappointment. The ironic thing is that all these attempts to protect ourselves from impermanence and the suffering of impermanence, we only magnify our suffering. So much of our suffering is caused by the illusion of a separate self-existing being. This idea, this misperception of reality, cuts us off from one another, cuts us off even from ourselves. We operate in a world of myopic entitlement. We construct a beautiful house of cards, and if we're lucky, we may even make it to our deathbeds with the cards still standing. But is that a life? Is that the kind of life that we can say on our deathbed, goodbye everyone, goodbye everything, and thank you so much. It's been a ride. So going forth this week, I challenge you to contemplate on the three marks of existence. And the way you can do this was laid out by the Buddha 2,500 years ago and is found in the Samyutta Nikaya from the Pali Canon. Quote, The body, bhikkhus, is impermanent. What is impermanent, that is suffering. What is suffering, that is not self. What is not self should be considered as, this is not mine, I am not this, this is not myself. In this manner, it should be seen according to actual perfect wisdom, end quote. So in other words, as Diomo Burke has written, anything that we may identify as ourselves and rely on to give us security, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm an employee, I'm a lover, is subject to change. And this change causes suffering. So I'd like to end with a quote from Gary at Buddha Space. That's what he calls himself, G, G at Buddha Space. And he says, The Buddha said that since we have no ultimate control over whether our bodies are sick or not, young or old, alive or dead, they are not truly us, nor do they belong to us. These bodies will get ill, age, and die according to their nature, irrespective of what we think. The Buddha also applied this principle of not-self to our feelings, positive, negative, and neutral, to our, to our perceptions, mental formations such as thoughts or views, and to consciousness itself. None of them constitute a permanent self, or do they belong to me that I take to be here they belong to nature. End quote. So what do we do? 
we stop identifying these things as ourselves, instead of our usual story telling which the Buddha called I-making and my-making, this time I'm not going to say this is mine, I am this, this is myself, but I'm going to turn that on its head. And I'm going to say, this is not mine, I am not this, this is not myself. So I want to give you a few moments to share any thoughts or anything that came up um, about impermanence, non-self, or dukkha. <laughs> One thing when it comes to our minds and, and emotion, um, Uchiyami Roshi uh, teaches that the mind is like an organ. It's like a gland. It secretes thoughts. It secretes feelings. And we're not, we're not responsible for our pancreas secreting insulin. It's like, damn it, why isn't it? If you're a diabetic, you may have yelled at your pancreas a couple of times. Why aren't you working right? Uh. Trying to will it. We can't will it. It's the same thing with our mind and our thoughts. Now, we are responsible about our behavior and what we do with it. I mean, Buddhism is all about responsibility. Responsibility as responsiveness to life. At the same time, your brain secretes thoughts. That's why it's impossible to say, I, I'm, I have reached the place of no thinking. I am an awakened... Bi yeah, whatever, bullshit. <laughs> your brain secretes thoughts. Your brain secretes emotions. It's just what it does. What an awakened person can do is not follow the story doesn't start creating new stories and writing more stories and going back to old stories and saying these stories is mine, the story is me. No I-making or my-making. It just experiences it. It's just awareness. Not wanting more, not wanting less, but what is and what the experience is. There is such great insight into our engagement with reality and some can think, when they look at Buddhism, they can say, well, craving causes uh, suffering, so I just don't have to crave anything and don't want anything. And that puts you in the opposite direction because that's all about disconnection. And it's not about disconnection. If anything, the teachings of the Buddha is engagement with life. Engagement with life as it is, not through the filter of our biases and our stories and our fears and our misperceptions but seeing the amazing, beautiful thing it is. And the other word for nirvana, when I was learning about Buddhism, nirvana was this idea of the void or emptiness. But the other meaning of nirvana is bliss. The bliss of being able to truly respond to life. Could you imagine to be able to go through one day without any reactivity, to be free of reactivity. What a beautiful day that would be. And that's what the teachings are showing us, a way of life that we can transcend reactivity and be responsive to life, to be engaged with life.
to be a part of the continual flow of now. Namo Amida Butsu. Let's go to our last page in our book. May the merit of this ceremony adorn the Buddha's pure lands, bring forth the fourfold kindnesses, and relieve the suffering of life's paths. As we leave and conclude this gathering, we surround all people and all forms of life with infinite love and compassion. May the sound of this bell ring throughout the universe, awakening all beings to joy and equanimity. to the light of Amida Buddha. May all beings be free. Namu Amida Butsu. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The Way of Oneness is produced by the Salt Lake City Buddhist Fellowship, an all-inclusive, trans-sectarian American Sangha in the spirit of Bright Dawn Way of Oneness Buddhism. To learn more about the fellowship, please contact us at saltlakebuddhist.org. Our website will give information about meetings and other services that we provide the community. Again, thank you for listening.